John chapter 2, as we continue here, we're going to finish the chapter here this morning. And man, this is a powerful passage. And we need to soak in on it. We need to see it for all that it's worth. So let's look at John 2, 13 through 25. Here's what God inspired John to record. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus said to them, or I'm sorry, so the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, we bow before your word this morning now and ask that you would speak to us, that we would understand this passage and that we would be moved by the Holy Spirit to apply this passage to our lives. And Father, I'm mindful for every church in America right now, including those in Stephenville, that there would be people faithfully gathered around your word as we will be, and that the gospel will be presented in all churches, and that Jesus Christ will be made much of in every worship service this morning. Father, I pray that that's what will happen right here in our midst right now. We entrust this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Jesus is here in Jerusalem. He's gone up to celebrate the Passover. He's doing something that was installed into the Jewish nation some 1,400 years prior to this. This is a long-standing tradition for Jewish people to go to Jerusalem once a year to make sacrifice for their sins and to remember the Passover that happened back in Egypt when Israel was delivered from Egypt and the bondage that they had been in for some 400 years. And Jesus and his family being faithful Jewish people themselves, every year, no doubt, we don't have it recorded in Scripture, but every year, no doubt, they went up to Jerusalem to remember the Passover. The instruction was given in Deuteronomy 16. God inspired Moses to say, And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. And then in verse 5, You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell in it, there you shall offer 
the Passover sacrifice. So I want you to picture this scene. Every year, there's Jews from all over the geographic region that is the Middle East, all the way back over into maybe even what we call Italy today. And they're all making this long journey. Jesus and his family, Floyd read for us when Jesus was 12 years old and he went to the temple for the Passover. His family was doing this when he was 12. Here now we think Jesus is 30. Ballpark. This is A.D. 30. And he, all these people are journeying to Jerusalem out of obedience to the Deuteronomic, Deut- Deuteronomy command that God gave through Moses. And when they make this long journey, there's a sacred purpose at hand to remember the Passover. I want you to just stop as we set this scene and I want you to picture Jesus Christ going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Said another way, Jesus Christ is going to Jerusalem to celebrate Himself. The Passover foreshadows, points to Jesus Christ. There's going to be blood taken from an unblemished lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that blood was smeared on the doorposts which image the cross. Jesus Christ is the Passover Lamb. Jesus Christ is going to Jerusalem to remember and to celebrate that He is the ultimate deliverance of Israel, of you and me, from bondage in Egypt and sin. So this is, this is not some ho-hum Passover event for Jesus. This is about Himself. This is biographical, autobiographical, if you will. It's so amazing to think that Jesus, the Lamb of God Himself, is going to go celebrate with all of His people the meal that points to Him. So we're in this temple scene, and we see that in the temple, He found, Jesus found, those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers. What's going on here? What's wrong with this picture? Well, the Passover meant big business. Big business for Jerusalem merchants. For you see, these Jewish worshipers that came from long distances, they couldn't bring their animal to sacrifice with them. And so there was a market set up in Jerusalem for them to buy the animals that they needed to make offering for their sins before God. Now, the custom was, and this is, this is fine, the custom was these animals were sold out on the Mount of Olives. That, that was the normal tradition for some 1,400 years. So there does need to be a provision of animals for people to buy to make sacrifice for their sins because they can't bring them from all the way in their long-distance homes. But the problem is the marketplace is not out on the Mount of Olives. The marketplace is inside the temple courts. And so we see here that we have profiteering happening in the house of God. Also, all males 20 years of age and older were required every year at this time to make an offering to pay a tax to the temple. And so we have money changers here in the temple. The taxes had to be paid in Jewish currency. They couldn't pay with their currency from the countries that they came from, so there had to be a currency exchange. And so the money changers are doing deals in the courts of the temple, and we have very good reason to believe that they were doing this at inordinate rates of usury. Their fees for converting currency, the fees for buying an unblemished lamb were exorbitant. 
taking advantage of the people who had traveled long distances and who were poor. So as I said, it was commonplace for this to happen on the Mount of Olives as a viable business, but the problem is it has moved inside the temple courts, and as Jesus comes into the temple, he hears the bleeding of sheep instead of the praying of saints. He hears cattle and pigeons and money changers haggling and making deals in the temple court. The only place in the temple this could have happened is in what's called the the court of the Gentiles, which is an open area outside of the temple. In in the internal part is the Holy of Holies. There's the court of the, the Jews, the Israelites, court of Israel. This court of the Gentiles is where this was happening. Well, this is a place that God made provision for even Gentiles to come and pray, and they cannot do that because there's a Canton-like East Texas trade days happening in the temple courts. You got the image? The animal section over at Canton? That's going on in the temple courts, and worship cannot happen in the midst of all of that. So there's at least three really significant problems about what Jesus discovered. Number one, they're using a sacred place of worship for commerce and personal financial gain. What should be a place of reverent worship, a place of peace and prayer being offered to God and repentance has been overcrowded with livestock and noise and trading and self-profit. Secondly, Gentile worship is obstructed in the temple court Instead of being a sacred place for them to pray, because they can't go into the Holy of Holies, there's this farmer's market happening where they would be worshiping. And number three, there's the taking advantage of the poor by selling livestock, and in this case, pigeons, at the place of sacrifice at highly inflated prices. For you see, God made provision in his law for even the economically downtrodden to be able to make sacrifice before him. If you look in uh, Leviticus 5.7, it says, But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons. So our gracious God's even made it to where the poor man can make sacrifice and be right with him. In fact, when you look at Jesus' history as a child, when he's dedicated in the temple, Mary and Joseph bring for Jesus a, a suitable sacrifice. It's two pigeons or two turtle doves. So Jesus comes from poor stock. And here the poor people are being taken advantage of in the temple. So we've got a really, really messed up situation. If you look at Malachi, I want you to turn to the very last book of the Old Testament. Turn to Malachi chapter 3. So that we can see this day foretold by God. Malachi 3, chapter 1. We'll read the first two verses of chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Who's that messenger? John the Baptist. That messenger is John the Baptist. We've talked about that on Sunday night. So I'm going to send my messenger before me. He will prepare the way. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Well, I tell you that that day is ultimately the day of the second coming of Jesus Christ. But that day is also seen here in this time when Jesus at the time of Passover comes into the temple and he finds Canton happening in the courts. So he's a radical warrior all of a sudden. Let's watch this. And making, I'm starting back over in John 2, 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. You hear Malachi 3, 1 and 2 in that? So Jesus' response to this was that he is a warrior that is to be reckoned with. I see here premeditated violence on the part of Jesus because he had to take the time to go fashion a whip out of cords, probably taking straps that were used to lead animals around, tying them together in a knot, and then swinging them around and driving out the sheep and the oxen and the money changers. Just throwing tables over and coins are flying everywhere. He's caused a battle scene to happen in the trade market where there should be worship. So how do we, first of all, reconcile this with other scriptures where Jesus speaks against violence and retaliation? You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if your enemy wrongs you, turn the other cheek. If he says you've got enemies, you're not to persecute them. It's not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil a foothold. How do we reconcile those types of passages with what Jesus has done here? You need to ask that question. The first thing we need to understand is 2 Corinthians 5.12 says this, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So we need to trust Scripture. He didn't sin by turning over these tables and driving these animals out. There's no sin happening here. And we could stop right there because the Bible said it and say, good enough for me. Couldn't we? But we need to understand that this is no sin here to protect and to clean the house of God. That is not sin. And we need to understand that Jesus Christ, if we've heard anything these last many weeks, Jesus Christ is God Himself in the flesh. So this is His house, His Father's house as well. And the wrong is against God. Jesus being God is right to purge the temple of the ways that it's been defiled. And so if you think Jesus was unjustly harsh in this scenario then I would say you don't rightly see the deity of Christ. And again, once again, on a Sunday morning at Rocky Point Baptist Church, I want to point all of us to the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God with us in the flesh. And He is doing no wrong here. He is cleaning the house of the Lord. So it says here in verse 17 that His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house 
will consume me. That's a quote straight out of Psalm 69, verse 9. We call Psalm 69 a crucifixion psalm. And it says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Well, I'm going to ask you this morning, how zealous was Jesus Christ for the house of the Lord? We see some zeal here in the cleaning. But I'm going to tell you that he was so zealous that he would die for it. And it says in Psalm 69.9, after it says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, then it says, And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Jesus was reproached to the point of hanging on a cross because he was consumed for the house of the Lord. So that's how zealous Jesus was for this house. Let's move on. Look in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. How will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So we have first that Jesus came to celebrate himself at the Passover. And upon discovering what was happening in the temple, we see that Jesus cleansed the temple. Now we're going to see that Jesus replaces the temple. So there's temple work here. There's some battles happening. And he is going to say to these Pharisees, this temple will be replaced and I will be its replacement. Let's watch and see this happen. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? So they're looking for a sign. And Jesus gives them a sign for all time. Not a temporary sign, but a sign for all time. They don't condemn him for doing what he's done. In fact, I think the Pharisees know, yeah, we've, we've kind of messed up. We should not have let this happen in the temple. So they're not condemning him. They're wanting to know by what authority is Jesus acting this way. And Jesus rarely answers questions directly in the book of John. If you read the book, you're going to see answers like this one. Destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it up. What does that mean? He never directly answers these questions. He often uses parables or prophecies. And here I'm telling you that Jesus Christ prophesied his death and his resurrection. Destroy this temple and John whispers in our ear, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. You destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Resurrection language, folks. The most incredible truth ever is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He cannot be destroyed. These Pharisees, these Jews, did set out to destroy him, did they not? Their goal was to destroy him, and he raised himself on three days. And so this is the very, very first controversy that we see between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. This is the beginning, this is the beginning of Jesus' march towards that cross. It starts right here, first controversy in all of John. And I want to show you how Jesus is a radical, radical warrior. I'm afraid too often we see Jesus as a passive, 
gentle man. I know you do. We've, we've all grown up with soft Sunday school lessons starting in the nursery. And we need to see the good, soft, gentle, loving, compassionate Jesus. We need, he, he is that. But it's very rare that we show the warrior Jesus, even in our adult Sunday school classes. And I'm here to tell you this morning that our Jesus, our Christ, is a valiant, tenacious warrior. He's not soft. He's not namby-pamby. He is a warrior to the nth degree. So do you see him as a passive man that was mistreated by others? Do you see him vulnerable and dismayed at his situation, dismayed at the temple, dismayed at the cross, dismayed at Pilate, dismayed at Judas? Or do you see him as a powerful man who has subdued his self-interests, who has bridled his personal desires and forsaken them for the sake of God the Father and you and me? He is that. He's powerful. I said last Sunday, the most powerful man you can show me is one that can control himself. Jesus Christ is powerful, tenacious, valiant. And he goes and he turns tables over and builds a whip and drives the oxen out. You think oxen are a big deal? Can you imagine oxen being driven out of the temple courts? They kill people when they run over people. So we've got a warrior in the temple courts, and I'm telling you right now, that that cross right there, I thought about this while we were singing, don't know why, that cross right there is a symbol of war. Do you see that cross as a battle symbol? Because I'm telling you the most tenacious war that ever happened on the planet Earth happened on a cross that looked someone like that. So he's a valiant warrior who defeated sin and defeated death forever. He was the promised offspring in Genesis 3.15. You know, when God places the curse upon the snake, He said, Cursed are you. You'll crawl on the ground. You'll eat dust for all of your existence. And then there's going to be this offspring. You're going to have offspring, and the woman is going to have offspring. And the offspring of that woman, you're going to strike his heel. But he's going to crush your head. Look it up, Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3, we see a promise of a Messiah, a warrior Messiah that's going to come and he's going to stomp the serpent's head and rub it into the ground until he is no more. And I'm telling you, that moment, the striking of the heel of the offspring of the woman was Jesus hanging on a cross. And the crushing of the head of that serpent was Jesus rising from the dead on that third day. You destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Warrior King, Jesus Christ. Nathaniel says, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Last Sunday night we talked about prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus fulfills all three offices. Here he is a king coming and raiding and crushing the enemy under his heel. There's a battle. And Jesus is a warrior. And Jesus is a victorious warrior. He's not some mere, sappy, 
blue-eyed, by the way. If you go look in all the churches in America, these portraits of Jesus, he's looking up like this with blue eyes, with a little glow about him. He was a warrior. Do you see Jesus as a warrior fighting for his bride on behalf of God the Father? So look at these crosses. If you've got them hanging around your neck, I want you to know that cross is a symbol of war. (laughs) It's not some mere trinket that we decorate ourselves with. It's saying there was a war. And that cross is empty, by the way. He's not hanging on that cross. It's not a crucifix. It's an empty cross because He came off that cross and He rose from the dead. Do you believe that this morning? You need to hear that often. Even if you do believe it, I hear amens. You need to hear it over and over and over. We don't ever need to let that cross be a symbol that gets watered down to become some item of decoration. And I love crosses. Have them. But don't let them turn into trinkets. It's a symbol of war. So he is no victim. He's a victorious warrior. Let me give you one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. Okay, and I know I say that a lot, <laughs> but here's another one. John 10, 17 and 18, I want you to hear it, make it, make a note of it in your Bible somewhere or, or turn to it. I hear the pages turning, let's go to it because it, were, it is worth our attention this morning. He is not a victim, he's a victorious warrior, and he says this to his disciples. For this reason, John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is no wimp. Jesus is a powerful warrior who laid his life down on that cross and in that grave, and picked it up again on that third day. I just thought of this. Go to Revelation 19. We, we, we can't move on without doing this. Revelation 19. Jesus is warrior. Turns over the temple courts, cleans them up. He's a warrior on the cross, warrior in the grave, warrior when he rises on the third day. He's going to be a warrior again one day. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John, the same author of the book that we're in, says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. Hello, John 1.1. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. And from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe, on his thigh, he has a name 
written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Our Jesus is a warrior. He's not a wimpy, sappy little Jewish man that was a carpenter and liked to build things. Tenacious, aggressive warrior. And he's coming again. It's a promise. And he's going to come like this with a sword out of his mouth and his robe dipped in blood. And he's coming, it says, to make war. Not with you and me if we believe in him. <laughs> no, if we believe in him, we will be in his army. He's coming to judge once and for all those that don't believe. And he's coming once and for all to crush the head of that serpent under his heel for all of eternity. Jesus, church, is a warrior. So we see here that we've had two signs so far in the book of John. We've had this purification jar thing last week where water is turned into wine. I told you guys, hey, that's not that Jesus is just a supernatural superhero. He can make water into wine. No, there was real live significance to that in that that water turning into wine in purification jars, that wine represented his blood that was going to purify you and me if we believe in him once and for all. So that water to wine last week was a purification sign. And the sign this week, cleansing the temple, is a purification sign. And that temple being destroyed and raised up on the third day, that's how we're purified through trial of our Savior in our place when we deserve to be there on that cross. Powerful. We cannot read John 2 too fastly. Soak on it and mine it for all the gold that's in there. Read it slow. Ponder it and study it. Because there's much to be had here. So both of these signs, the water to the wine, the cleansing of the temple, both ultimately are fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And in verse 22 of John 2, we see that when therefore he was raised from the dead some three years in the future, his disciples remembered back to this moment and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. And I'm just going to leave that because that's tonight's topic in church tonight at 615. So come for that because there's a lot to unpack in that little verse, verse 22. I'll tell you that right now. So now moving on. What is the temple today? Last thing in your outline this morning. What is the temple of the Lord today? What is God's house? I'm going to tell you, God is not dwelling in this building. We often, we, we say this is God's house. I'm going to go to God's house. and That's not exactly right. So what is it? <laughs> Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And John whispers in our ear, he was talking about his body. Okay, that whisper we need to camp out on. So it's not this church building. I want you to hear 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Paul says, Or do you not know that your body... He's talking to the Corinthians here. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in His temple, your body. 
So the temple of God is found in the heart of the Christian. That's what it means when we say, I invited Jesus to come into my heart. That's like saying God indwelt the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 30. The temple now is here within us. It's not in a building anymore. The Holy Spirit fills the temple. The Holy Spirit is from God. The Holy Spirit is God. So you and I, if we believe in Jesus Christ, are the temple of the Lord. It's not human arrogance. It's biblical truth right here. 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 3. Watch this one. Do you not know, verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Can't get any plainer than that, can it? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Straight out of the Bible. Not my opinion. Hadn't gotten tricky with some verses. Straight out of the Bible. You and me, if we believe in Jesus Christ, are God's temple. Not this building, but us. Now let me show you something significant here. In this 1 Corinthians 3 passage, it's different from the 1 Corinthians 6 passage. When it says, you are God's temple, that you, in the original Greek, is plural. Now, in English, when we see you for plural, it's Y-O-U, right? And we don't know if that's plural or singular. But in the Greek language, the you that was plural was spelled differently. And you could say, aha, plural you. This you here in 1 Corinthians 3 is a plural you. And so this is talking about a group of people, not a specific individual. The 1 Corinthians 6 was you and me as individuals. Here we have a group of people. And so I'm going to tell you this morning that the you is the body of Christ. Well, what's the body of Christ? The church. Us. So we, together, Rocky Point, are the body of Christ. Not this building but us in our hearts. And when we collect together, there's a body. And that body has many parts. And there's hands and there's ears and there's feet. And all need to function according to how they were made and what they were made for. So there's a call here for unity to be presiding in the church of Jesus Christ. And so the church is made up of people, not buildings. And he's referring to a body when he says, I'll raise this up in three days, not a building. And we are united in the body of Christ. So we're going to transition here in a minute to the Lord's Supper. And I've told you this morning that our Christ is a warrior. And he fought a war and he won a war on behalf of you and me. And when we take the Lord's Supper, Jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of me. And we're remembering That with blood on it. Because he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Hear the purification from last Sunday? The the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We are going to gather here as a church body, the body of Christ, the temple of the Lord, we in our hearts, And we're going to remember our warrior, Jesus Christ. We're not going to remember a softy. We're going to remember a tenacious warrior 
who's guaranteed to come again more tenacious than we've ever, ever seen him. So as you now prepare, we're going we're gonna to prepare now as we come to the table. I'll ask Micah to come up and get ready. As we prepare, I want us to look at verses 23 and 24 and 25 of John 2 as a time of preparation. Listen to this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. As we come to remember him now, I want to ask you, who are you? Jesus knows who you are. Jesus knows what's inside of you. You Remember, I've said often, it's been several weeks since I've not said it, I better say it again. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. And here's a verse that points to that. Jesus knows what's inside of man. He doesn't need anybody to tell him what's inside of you. He knows what's inside of you. And as you come to remember at this table in a moment, you need to be right-hearted. And Jesus knows your heart. Listen to this. When Paul gave instructions to the Corinthian church to partake of the Lord's Supper, he says, Whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning his body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So I want you now to enter into a time of evaluation. Not going to take long. Micah's going to lead us in some song. He's going to play, and we're going to pray. You can pray where you are. You can come to the front. But we must evaluate ourselves. And we need to say, Jesus, you know what's in my heart. You know who I am. Show me where I'm wrong, and let me confess it right now so that I can partake of this supper in the right way. Now let me talk about this supper real briefly. This supper is for believers in Jesus Christ. This is not a common meal for the world at large. He gave this to his disciples. And he said, do this as often as you eat of it in remembrance of me. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, before you come to this table, do you remember what Jesus did for you? What he did for you is he died on the cross in your place. You deserve to hang on that thing. But he was condemned in your place and in my place. And that's what we're to remember. If you don't believe that to be true, then you're not in a position to remember this morning. And so I would ask you to let the cup and let the bread pass until the time when you do know Jesus Christ so that you can rightly remember and you won't eat or drink judgment upon yourself. Now, there's a warning to us as believers. Hear me. We don't come to this table trivially. We don't skip down to the table and take us some bread and drink some juice and blow it off and go watch football. No, we stop and we examine. We say, 
Am I dying like you died for me to the things of this world that entrapped me? Am I cutting off those things that caused me to sin? And am I asking the Lord to forgive me? Or am I holding on to sin and delighting in it? Because if you are, you're not to come eat at this table. You will be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself because you'll be profaning the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a most serious meal. This is not something we do by just going through the motions. This is an ultimate, ultimate act of worship because we remember that that is a symbol of war that was fought in our behalf. So I'm going to open us with prayer. I want you to take some time to go to the Lord and say, test me, Lord, and show me. Put your finger in that thing in my heart that I need to get rid of so that I can partake of this meal in a right way that would honor you. Father, I do ask that you would cleanse us right this minute. You turned water into wine to show us that you would purify us of all of our sins. Would you use this time to purify us so that we're right as we remember the body and the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, if the hearts that we have in this place, if, if you need to go into our hearts and turn things upside down and run things out of them, would you please, Lord, do it in these short moments so that we can have a clean temple in our heart for you to reside in and to partake of this precious time of worship in the Lord's Supper. Father, move amongst your people. Father, make us humble before you. In Jesus' name, amen.